I pride myself in keeping the energy the same because I think it's yes you have people that come back and watch the show three four times but the majority of the people it's their first time seeing it so why shouldn't it be as good as the guys that saw it last night or the night before or four months ago um so I pride myself in keeping the energy levels up it's hard and it's taxing on the body like I always say that Lola has all the fun and I don't but like my dad said if you do what you love you never work a day in your life so I get to do what I love and nothing worth having is ever easy Hey, I'm Dan Brophy, and this is Quit Your Day Job, a podcast for frustrated creatives. This is a podcast for those whose eight to six is a means to an end. Those who are looking for a way to connect the dots between the thing they love to do and the thing that they do for a living. Each week, I'm going to talk to someone who's engaging with a passion and making an income from it. I want to find out how they came to discover the thing that they love to do, what their day-to-day looks like, and how they came to monetize their skills. Whether you're stuck in a job you hate, looking to break through a creative block, or trying to discover an outlet for your passion, this is the podcast for you. This week, my guest is Callum Francis, the star of Kinky Boots, which is just about to finish its Australian theatrical run after playing Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. Kinky Boots is the Broadway and West End hit musical about a guy who inherits a shoe factory and the drag queen who inspires him to think outside the box and make women's shoes for men who dress as women. The show's themes of celebrating diversity couldn't be more apt now. It's as if it was meant to be. The purpose of this interview wasn't necessarily for those who just want to get into musical theatre. It's about setting your sights on the seemingly unattainable goal, your dream job, or in this case, dream role, of which Kellum has performed two musical theatre leads that those in his industry would step over a bitch to get to. Simba in The Lion King and now Lola in Kinky Boots. What I wanted to find out in talking to Callum was the mindset and day-to-day process that gets someone to be a leader in their field. No matter what your chosen vocation, the climb is never-ending. You're always competing with your previous bests, if not that of your peers. So what is the mindset that allows you to not only target your dream role, but once you get there, to continue to reinvest your passion and energy in order to keep it fresh? This is Dan Brophy's Quit Your Day Job, a podcast for frustrated creatives. And this is Callum Francis, star of Kinky Boots, in an episode that I like to call The Drag of Landing Your Dream Job. When someone says, what do you do? What do you tell them? Um, I used to say I was an actor. And I guess now if someone was to ask, I always, on the forms when you always fill out occupation, I just put performer. Because it covers everything. And would you feel the need to reference the show you're currently working on when you say performer now? If if people ask, if people say, what are you performing in? Then, yeah, I'll go straight to Kinky Boots and be like, yeah, I'm playing Lola in Kinky Boots. But I never, I never really drop the Kinky Boots bomb unless they ask, do you know what I mean? Um, a lot of people, I know a lot of people use it to try and get certain things and stuff, but I'm just quite blasé with it. If you do drop the bomb 
What's the reaction usually? It com- honestly, it completely varies. Um, sometimes people have seen it and love it, and then as soon as they say that, because I look completely different in my character, they then put the two together and go, oh, I recognise you. And then sometimes people don't know, but they recognise it. As soon as you say Cindy Lauper wrote the music, they recognise that. They go, yeah, I've heard about that one. Because we were doing, I mean, you and I were shooting a promotional video for Kinky Boots, yes. and it felt like people, random mums and dads, middle-aged mm. tourists in the street, were like, "I saw you in in, in Winnipeg." It was great, <laughs> and, they, and it's kind of like you're Santa's helper, and that they just think that you're, you know, yeah. you may as well have been the actor performing the yes, role of Lola. That when one they lady saw... said, "I saw you on Broadway," and I was like, "I wish you'd seen me on Broadway, but you didn't." Um, yeah, they, you get a random group of people coming, and I kind of think that's the the beauty of the show that we do is that it's an umbrella for all these different shapes, sizes, races, religions, all sorts. And everyone just comes in there. They all leave with the same feeling. Are you compared to other Lolas in the international circuit? Do people say, look, yeah. she's, she's, as, she's as good as Broadway or she's as good as the West End? Yes. And unfortunately, that's kind of just a thing that goes through our industry. Um Constantly compared to even understudies, even I have two brilliant understudies and you get constantly compared to them and I got a message the other day off a girl that had seen the show here and had seen it on Broadway and she had her own opinion. Um, yeah, so it's, and it's fine and I mean you have to have a thick skin to do that because sometimes they can't be positive and they're not always going to be. And also there's so many variables in terms of someone's experience. They might have, you do a show for three or four or five months in a city and, you know, show 45 versus show 102 oh, might be so different for a number of reasons. Yeah, because the, and that's the best part about it. I've been doing... King Caboose has been part of my life now for coming up to two years. And, in fact, no, yeah, it'll be two years. And every audience has been different. And that's what keeps it alive. That For me, in my head, having done it for this long, that's what keeps it alive. The fact that everywhere you go you're going to be getting different crowds. Like, Melbourne crowds, compared to Sydney crowds, are completely different. But then again, the theatres are different. So the intimacy of Her Majesty's Theatre, you don't get here at the Capitol, because it's so vast. Um, so that, ha- that like, kind of judges people's reactions in the way that I have to do, like, kind of portray my part in the show, because it's bigger here, because it has to fill a bigger space. Um but they're all completely different. Sometimes, I can remember once in Melbourne we got a guy, well, a group of guys that just didn't warm to Lola in any way, shape or form. They preferred Don, who bullies, bullies Lola and is the unsung hero. But you don't know that until the very end. And they were just team Don, Don from the start to the finish. And it was so strange. And, and like, I can remember they booed Lola at one point, which... It's fine. I mean, I didn't take it to heart, but a lot of people in the cast were a bit, like, angry with them and kind of said... They did Obviously, we don't say anything during the show, but backstage they were like, why are people doing this? Like, we don't get it. It's not fair. But the meaning of our show is all about acceptance, and if anything, they're the kind of people that need to come and watch it because by the end, they change their minds, and it's all about that. And so I'm, I'm kind of like... I like any reaction, good or bad. Do you think that it's... You know, the reason why that those characters are written in that story is because it speaks to a, a closed-mindedness of the Don character that's being challenged by what Lola represents to Completely. him in, in the story world. 
is that what was playing out in the minds of the pro Don dudes in I the guess, audience? Well, look, I guess I didn't get to meet them or speak to them, but I, I guess it was that. But all I do know is that at the end, they were cheering for everyone, along with everybody else in the audience. And that's the important part, the fact that they, they felt the same at the end. We get the likes of... For one, one story we always tell is that it was an 88-year-old lady who was sat behind our MD, Luke Hunter. And at the end of the show, she tapped him on the shoulder and she was like... She said, now I don't know how I feel about those people that I watch. She obviously thought that we were drag queens in real life and portraying our stories. And she said, now I don't know what I feel about those people. However, I've sat for two hours and 15 minutes and I've laughed and I've cried with them and they've made me feel really good about myself. And she said, so now I have to go home and have a strong word with myself about how I feel about those people. And I mean, she was an 88-year-old lady. And it's that whole old thing of you can't teach an old dog new, new tricks or whatever it is. Um, and she was like, she completely got moved by it. And she was a kind of from a stubborn generation. And that's kind of a... I, I, Kinky Boots has this weird power over people that it does that. You You leave having so much fun but you've learned something about either yourself or someone else sat next to you who you didn't really know a lot about. It's not just about drag queens. And I think that's what draws me to the story. I, Callum, I can bring that into the story because I like to help people. I like to change people's minds. And the fact that I have this show as a platform to do that is just kind of once in a lifetime. It, it's so intoxicating when I saw a Melbourne show at the half at the interval... I went in to buy, grab a snack from 7-Eleven on the corner and people were literally singing and dancing in the aisles of 7-Eleven mm. underneath the white halogen lights <laughs> <laughs> and next to a slurpy machine because they were so turned on mm, by it's it. It's weird. And it's like a drug. It's, it's, is there something about the intoxicating beauty of it or that it's so colourful and fun and it's easy to jump on board because it's really... You know, it's, it's there's so much, there's so much to like about it that even if you were really close-minded, you could potentially come away with something that made you hundred feel differently. On the outside, Kinky Boots is a story about a northern boy who inherits a factory and meets a drag queen and begins making shoes for drag queens and then accepts Lola the drag queen for who she is. But it's not just that. There's a father and son relationship, which for some, for some reason in society, people don't talk about the father and son relationship. It's normally the mother and the, ch- and the, and the kids. Like, it's, it's kind of a taboo subject. And I don't know why. Maybe it's a thing to do with masculinity or anything, but they don't really talk about the father-son. We do. And I get messages from sons, from fathers, like, constantly saying, you have helped me accept what my son is, or... From the from the kids' point of view, saying I told my parents, we've had so many coming out stories. From varies from I think the youngest I got was sixteen, and the eldest I've got is forty, and it's just bizarre because I'm honestly just playing a part, and the part opens so many doors for so many people, and the the reason people dance in the aisles is because yes, the music is brilliant, but they've learnt something. Like I said earlier, they've. They have. They've come away, and I think maybe a lot of people surprise themselves because they didn't think that they would feel this way about certain things. When you 
I mean, I'd love to find out how you came to be performing this really iconic role. What was your involvement with it before it came to Australia? Were you were you aware of it? Did you have, play any part in the the UK version? Yes, of I was in I was in the original cast in London, um, and I understudied the role. So I basically went on when the guy playing it was either sick, injured, or on holiday. Um, I found out about it through my agent, like I normally do, like in the profession we have agents and we go and audition, and I had about maybe 10, 11 auditions for it. Um, now I was a swing in the UK, so I did all the boys' tracks. I was off stage, and then whenever they needed me, I was on. Um, I did all the angel tracks and all the boys' tracks. Um, As in you would be standing on the side of stage singing? I'd be standing... No, I wouldn't be singing. I'd be in my dressing room uh, standing by just in case they needed me. And, I mean, we have a lot of holidays in the UK and then there's sickness, so I was on quite a lot. But I think in total I knew about 12 12 parts um, that I had to kind of just jump at. Um, And then the the, uh, opportunity came up to come here to Australia with it because my friend my best friend's from Australia and he was auditioning and he's like we can't they can't find a Lola wouldn't it be funny if you did it and that's how it all began really I rang my agent and said listen I know that they're doing this what do you think and he kind of put my name forward and then Cindy came to watch and Jerry Mitchell the director and yeah they picked me and it was bizarre and then it was from then on it's kind of been my parents are br- pretty brilliant and very supportive and they brought me up the the best like anyone could and I'm a complete cop- carbon copy of them. They like to help people and no one has ever been had a platform like I have now. And so I like to do things for schools because I think it's very important to hit the younger generation, not hit the younger generation, but to get in with this message of acceptance because they're going to be the next adults, and then so on and so forth. And if I go into a classroom and talk to kids and change two of their minds, they're going to go and change two others, and it's not a failure that you don't change them all. And I've learned that along the way as well. So when you were... What was your... Thinking back to your education before you were available to be the understudy of Lola on mm-hmm. the West End, what had you done to get to that place? I'd done various shows in the West End. Um, I worked Did you for, study musical theatre? Yeah, I worked for seven years, but prior to that I studied in South London in a place called Epsom, um, which is Surrey, actually. Um, I moved there in, when was it, 2007, from Manchester, where I'm originally from, and trained for three years. Um, I originally thought I wanted to be a dancer, so I trained in dance, and then kind of realised I could sing and it went down the musical theatre route where I could do both. Um, but people people train from the age of three, four. I am a late bloomer. I started when I was 18 and kind of never looked back. I watched the, the tour of Miss Saigon with my parents in Manchester and was like, I can do that. I think I can do it. And then I've just always done it. And from seeing that, having that light bulb moment of... I can do that to being in the running and auditioning and mm. was that an inst- was that instantaneous when was your first gig after my that first my f- okay okay so after my first feeling so I watched Miss Saigon 2004 5 then a year after I moved to London so four years after that initial seeing Miss Saigon I worked 
my first job was my first job was actually a show called Naked Boy Singing, I'm... and it was like a fringe show, and it basically is what it says on the tin. It's Naked Boys Singing. There's a story around it, but it's Naked Boys. Um, uh, but another, another perfect example of you can turn up for the most superficial, fun, frivolous, oh. colourful stuff on the pamphlet, and hopefully you'll come away with more than just yeah. that. But, you know, you can, <laughs> I, I just gave a nudity, but actually I, I got a heart and soul. Well, exactly, like, exactly that. And it was the same thing. People just came drunk normally and... Lots of hens nights. Oh, loads, loads of it. And loads of people were like, how do you do it? But it's art, like... We were born naked. I doesn't. I don't mind being naked. Like it's that wasn't the first thought that came into my head with the job. It was the acting side of it. I was like, okay, how are we going to portray these stories about these these seven guys? It was. Um, yeah, but that was just kind of a, another full, fun element to it. And then, funnily enough, the my next job from there was hair. Which is that brilliant, iconic musical? Yeah, that Kellen Francis, he'll get his gear off at <laughs> yeah. the drop of a hat. <laughs> exactly. And my agent used to laugh and say, "Oh, we, well, you're kind of starting a bit of a trend here. Like, where are we going to go after this one?" Um, but thankfully, there was no more nudity um, for my grandparents mainly. Um, but then I think so. I I watched that in 2005. So about seven, six years later, I'd say, I eventually did Miss Saigon. Which wow. I'd seen, which was so bizarre. So you planned that seed in 2004, and then would have just been the time at which yeah. the production rolls around to be staged again. It was so strange. And I can remember watching, I vividly remember watching it because I went back three times and was like, this is like the best thing I've ever seen. And I was like, I could be in this. And obviously, as a young mixed race guy in Manchester, you look on the stage and there was one part played by a black guy, uh, the part of John. And that's obviously you go, oh, I could do that. I could see myself doing that because it's the one you relate to most. And then I eventually got to understudy it and play it various, various, like a good 50 plus times in the West End. And it was just like full circle. It was so strange. Was the first time you stood on stage in the West End a real temple, yeah. like a totem of success moment? Oh, completely. Like it made me go, okay, this is why I'm doing this. This is why we've put all this work and this is why it's been a struggle to... Get the money, because training in a musical theatre in London is very, very expensive. So my poor parents had to go through a hell of a lot to get me there. And it was a Friday. Vividly remember, it was a Friday. It was in Ghost the Musical at the Piccadilly Theatre. I could probably even tell you the date if I thought really hard. But we'd opened on the Tuesday, and I was a swing again. And we didn't expect me to be on that quick. So it was really rushed. Um, and I had a really hideous wig on. And I can vividly remember standing in... Prompt side, the first wing, and the music starting. And I was like, "This is it. This is it." And then I can't remember the rest of it. But I, it was just like it's the West End. Like everybody in London dreams to be there, and I've been so lucky to go from show to show to show on the West End, and now eventually move over here and start taking theatres up in Australia. What is it like to perform for a culture that is so, for which theatre is so ingrained in the conversation? You know, there's 30 shows on at any one time in the West End, so the people, the average person is just getting along to whatever's yeah. out or whatever's to topical. It's brilliant, and the audiences are amazing, and they pay our bills. They keep they keep the shows open and forever grateful. However, it's it's interesting. The audiences here. In Australia, the way they vary, and I need to be careful how I say it because I, I do 
I don't mean it in any disrespect to any audience, but they're... I'll go to the cast. Let me just talk about the cast first before, and then it, the audience will explain easier. It's There isn't a lot of shows here in Australia. The industry is much smaller than it is in the UK or Broadway. And I find that the cast and the performers in Australia are far, far more... I don't want to say grateful, but they kind of... They've busted a gut to be where they are. So as soon as they're in it, then they hold on to it tight with, with both hands. Um, whereas in the UK, there's so much, so many more options. So there's a few people that sometimes slip under the net. And I'm not the only one in thinking it. I'm probably just the only one that says it. Um... So I found that with the audiences here as well. There's not a lot that comes around. So you kind of get groups from so many different backgrounds coming. Whereas the theatre in England, a lot of the shows are just kind of tourist attractions, which is brilliant because then you get audiences from all over the world. Um, but here you get the like the suburban people coming into the city for a night out, a family night out, and... Like I said, they love it. I, I feel like the industry here should be bigger mm-hmm. because the audiences want it. Like, it's not like they come and go, oh, I wish I didn't come. Yeah, they must. The thing is, I think it's, it, must be, it must be wonderful to know that you are directly impacting the culture of the place you are going by performing in Melbourne mm-hmm. or Sydney because there are people who come from those cities who are changed forever by seeing yep. it, who, who wouldn't otherwise have access to something like that. Australia, I personally, I mean, I'm saying this as an import, um, and again, no disrespect, Australia kind of needs a bit of kinky boots right now. It's, gay marriage is still illegal, which Lola and kinky boots, is kind of this big gay icon at the minute that could be a brilliant, like, mascot for it. And... It is a to- it's a topic that comes up quite a lot in interviews because it is a big gay camp musical and they go, how do you feel about the gay marriage? Now, I can't really comment. I can give my opinion, but I'm not Australian. But I find that the vast amount of people, in fact, I've not come across one person that said otherwise, they all just kind of feel a little embarrassed that it's not happened. And, I mean, you probably do yourself. Like, it, it needs to happen. And it needs to happen not for me because I'm a, you know, my, the way in which I live my life will not change one iota whether or not it's legalized or not. Exactly. It needs to happen for that struggling to deal with your sexuality kid in Queensland who's nine and who's looking at the world around him to let Mm -hmm. him know that he's okay or 11 or 15 or however old he is, whose parents don't agree with what he's doing. And because the government tells them that they're right in not agreeing exactly. with his sexuality. That's who needs it. I so. believe it will happen. I believe that there will be a time when you look back and go and forget that it wasn't ever a thing. Just the way it is in the UK now, it's a normal thing. The way it is in America. I have this um, this diary, this one-line-a-day, five-year diary, and I actually wrote in it the other day, and it was two years ago since it was legalised in America. Um, I think it was last week at some point. And it's like... It's never spoken about now. It's just a thing. It's only spoken about the lead up to it. And it's like... Cindy Lauper actually says, which is very funny, is gays should be allowed to get married so they can be as unhappy as everyone else. And it's so true because it's... 
it's a piece of paper that doesn't really mean a lot. Me and my partner are registered here in Australia as, as partners and we will be forevermore, like, whether we get married or not. Same as you guys. It's like, that's it. But I think, going back to the, the show, I think the show's a brilliant example of how much Australia would just embrace change. I also love that you've got this package which is super fun and easy to digest that would blow minds and change minds and you know shake things up a bit. Do you think that in gathering the energy behind a show like this to bring it to the West End or Broadway or Australia, is this because of signs in the rest of the culture through things like Drag Race that lets people know that drag is a thing that is worth that is current and necessary yeah. and worth celebrating I think so I think if you if you strip if you strip the show back and any show strip it all back to to a business to a producer or someone creating it to so you basically you make you open a business you make, you start a business to make money um and I think looking at it the creators of, say, for instance, when Miss Saigon came back round, it was during the time that we were at war again. And it was strange to think that the... Because it was based on true events about the Vietnam War, it was so strange that it was 25 years to the date after the Vietnam War and that Saigon was in the West End for the first time, but the news and everything was so current. The war, the struggle, the what was going on in Syria, it was all relevant. And Jerry Mitchell has created this brilliant bubble of... He calls it a tsunami of love, because when we are doing the finale, people just find themselves on their feet. They don't think, I'm going to stand up at the end of this. They just find themselves up. And the love that they give just helps us to finish this show on a high. Like, it helps us to just... And that's what a tsunami does. The wave goes over, and then it brings everything back out. Um... And he always describes it as that. And I think when he probably, I speaking on my opinion again, when he sat down and began creating it, he probably, he's a brilliant man with a heart of gold and he probably knew that it would affect people in such a positive way that the world, not just Broadway at the time, but the world needed it because it's it's gone to Australia, Korea, Japan, England... America, is, there's an American tour, like it's everywhere, it's going to Germany. It's like world domination because it fits the mould of every society completely. In thinking about your process around a, a, a show like this, is it energetically taxing to do yes. as many shows a week as you do? How many yeah. shows do you do? Eight shows. And that's what uh, five nights and two matinees. So we do Tuesday. Or we do Tuesday night, two Wednesday, Thursday night, Friday night, two Saturday, one Sunday in the afternoon. Um, yes, it's incredibly, incredibly taxing. What does your regime look like around that to focus on your creative process, your energy levels, your fitness? Fitness is huge because it's two and a half hours of cardio in heels. Um, so being a performer of fitness is just kind of a standard thing. A lot of people go to the gym for vain reasons, and it's the same reason as we do. We have to look good. Our bodies are our 
are our selling point. Um, but above all that, the insides of our bodies have to be good. So the food, the fitness, that's all a major key to it. So three times a week at the gym, if not more. Um, Do you have to worry about getting too bulky? I, yes, I can't gain weight, gain weight because I can't go up a dress size. Because <laughs> that corset <laughs> is very specific. Yeah, well, you, you remember that dress. Yeah, it, it was, was heavy and it heavy was tight. And so the carbs have to be high because I burn so much calories, um, which I struggle with because I'm naturally skinny. Um, the dresses are heavy. The, the dresses are made of Swarovski crystals. And you, you told me some tremendous facts around the cost of the... The boots are worth some extraordinary amount. Our boots are worth about $4,500. My finale dress, I'm trying to think, because I, I think in pounds it's about £10,000. Wow, so that's $25,000. Yeah, so my finale dress, we I think as a... As an estimate, we always say around forty thousand. So you can't you can't exactly come in and say, "Hey, I've gained weight. This doesn't fit me anymore," because it's not like popping up to H and M. Although, as far lot. as diffusion lines go, <laughs> but it's like, yeah. So that you have to kind of. I always I have a trainer, and he knows that I can't go up dress size, and he's trained female models before. So you kind of train about around that, and I don't really like that about my body, like. My insecurities is that I'm a 29-year-old man that has the size of a female or a young boy because I have a baby face. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I get ID'd still and it's, and it's brilliant. But I would love to be bigger. I've been so, so much bigger like for various shows. For Lion King, I was much manlier and beastier. Um, but I lost it all for this, which is fine. You, you do that. You have to. We should have done this earlier, but tell me about all the different shows that you've been part of. Because so far you've mentioned Ghost, Miss Saigon, Lion King, now Kinky Boots. What else have you that's, done? That's kind of it. Like I said, The Naked Boy Singing, then I did Hair, The Musical. I did a really cool gig in Shanghai for, I think it was about two or three months, where we opened this brilliant theatre with stars from Broadway, which was phenomenal which is where I met my best friend from Australia um then I did Ghost then I did Shanghai again then Lion King Miss Saigon Kinky Boots so yeah that's my kind of little CV of I think that's about seven years and is that a sense to lead role like indicative of the average person's process sometimes people never get there I've understood every single job I've done I've, I've understood it and I, that's kind of why the respect I have now for every single member of the company is so strong because I've, I've been there and I've tread, I've been on the boards and I've stepped all the way up gradually and now I'm at the point where I'm the lead in the show and I'm very, and I, I will be forever grateful, like, just because if it keeps climbing and hopefully the success continues, my mindset will never change. In my head, I'll still be the swing ensemble cover that will always help out. Um, I think that's very important to do that. In terms of the way, you know, you do a show that has, to the, to the centimetre, you have positioning that's designated mm -hmm. for you to be on stage in this place with your body angled in this position with your head turned to catch the light this way, saying very specific dialogue and, you know, intonation that would become part of your body. How... Influenced is the performance by the day you've had in the lead up to coming to the theatre that night. No, no, it's not. It's not complete. It's not at all. 
my Connie Dyson, my makeup artist, always says that I'm in the pre-show slump. Um, because what I'll do is subconsciously, I'll start to preserve energy throughout the day. And then I'll sit in the makeup chair where I'm sat for about an hour and 15 maybe. And I'll kind of be slumped and thinking in my head, this is going to be so, so hard. But then as soon as you step out there, this different alien takes over. And I pride myself in keeping the energy the same. Because I think it's... Yes, you have people that come back and watch the show three, four times, but... The majority of the people, it's their first time seeing it. So why shouldn't it be as good as the guys that saw it last night or the night before or four months ago? Um, so I pride myself in keeping the energy levels up. It's hard and it's taxing on the body. Like, I always say that Lola has all the fun and I don't. But, like my dad said, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. So I get to do what I love and nothing worth having is ever easy. So... Yeah, I, I, I do struggle. I, like I said I, to you earlier, I've been off the show for f just under four weeks, four weeks, um, because I got an injury. And it has been only four weeks. And in the long scheme of things, I'll look back and I'll probably forget it. But it's been a, a testing time on the brain, um, insecurity levels and anxiety of, can I still do this? Because I've not done it for so long. Um, yeah, all the demons that come with the the love for it are just as strong. Is there, because you've been the understudy that stepped into the role, are you nervous about, there's that phrase that comes to mind from Showgirls, there's always someone younger yeah. and hungrier coming down the <laughs> stairs behind you. There is always there, is. is hung, there hunger others? studies, I call them. Hunger studies! Yeah, um, no, not at all. Uh, the insecurity side of it isn't, isn't, like, it doesn't come from someone stealing your job um I'm, I'm confident that the reason i've got this part is because no one else could do it and that stays with you um it, people might see that as arrogant or cocky but it's it's not it's it's fact and i don't think even if i stayed off for longer i don't think i'd be going anywhere i think my job would always be safe with me and it shouldn't be... I've, I've understood understudied people in the past that I haven't necessarily been really close with or I felt intimidated by, like, maybe it was my own head or whatever, but I coming here, having climbed the ladder the way I have, I vowed that it was very important that I get on with my understudies. Um, because it's... They have to follow you. They have to... They have to step into your shoes when you're not there. And... If you intimidate, I think it's silly that sometimes you hear stories of principals intimidating the understudies or the understudies naturally feeling intimidated by them. Um, I think it's really bad because they have to step into your shoes and when you're not there, the show has to go on and it has to go on the same. Uh, so I think it's very important that my two guys are close with me and we get on and, I mean, they sit in this chair when I'm not here. So, yeah, I, I, I'd never be like that. I'm not that kind of person. You aren't, I don't know if you have a, a background doing drag before the show, but you have, Lola is such a fully realised three-dimensional human being. Mm. You know, even when you and I were working together making the, the promotional videos for the show, yeah. 
it felt like at some stage that fabulous woman yes, left the does. set and then you came you just came <laughs> it's back weird, like, isn't it? Callum was here having a chat then he stepped off then Lola arrived mm. and she we were working with Lola all day then later on the day Callum came back you know it's bizarre she's a, she's a such a three-dimensional person she is and she's she's a lot I describe her as like a bouncy ball on a lift if you get a bouncy ball and you just go like throw it as hard as you can it just goes for, for hours and she's like that and yeah it does it takes over like I've never dragged before in my life I'm an actor who will step into whatever part I need to and I've and I've, that's all I've done with Lola um she I'm fun I'm I'm lively she's like that times 10 and that's the way I put myself into it. But no, as soon as you get the get up on, you can't help it. Like, you have a dress on, you have heels, you can't sit like I, I'm sat now. Like, you, you close your legs and you do, you, you become it. And with the video, as soon as the camera came on, she has to take over. You have to allow her to and step back and see it as your kind of rest. It's weird, there are two personalities. As soon as I'm in it, if I'm by myself, she's not there. If I'm in the in in the costume and the wigs, and I'm sat on my own, then it's me. But if there's someone around, because also as well, it's so kind of iconic that dress and those boots. If someone sees it, they're gonna think kinky boots. And if I'm sat, legs spread, eating a big old burger, like it's not gonna look good for kinky boots. So she has to be kind of present. But she does take over. And I suppose you also become other people's fascination reflects into you and then that's probably the fuel that oh, keeps her burning that... the, I, I always say when we do Q&A's with kids or any competition winners or anything and they ask how you get the energy it's all stemmed from the audience it all is like if if an audience isn't with you which touch wood we've had everyone with us in Australia but if they're not with you if you don't have them in the palm of your hand it is the hardest job in the world to do because you can't find any more energy from yourself like I'm a strong believer of, of putting things out there and the universe has this energy and things like that I I think with regards to physical energy it's not just from inside you I think it's from everything around you like this interview now will bounce off each other and we'll get the questions that we need and it's the same as that if I'm in the costume and I see someone kind of like oh my god this is Lola I'll take that and I'll use that as my thing. And the, I don't know whether that's a hippie-ish way of looking at it, but I always have. There's something also about iconographic elements of beauty. I, I even just know it with myself in the brief whiff that I've had. If I, you know, if I put, you know, you, you put a wig on for a moment and you fling your hair back <laughs> and, and all of a sudden people just go, <gasps> yeah. you know, like there's this real thing of, of just if you invoke the spirit of these yeah. sort of... Um, totems or icons that people have ingrained in them yeah you know or even just the idea that when you've got those boots on to the extent like to see those your legs which go for days even out of boots just like kick up and it's just a bit of a it's it's know, a it's, weird it's a one to behold i i do i know that i make a pretty convincing female when i'm in drag um which is quite it's quite fun because i am a boy i have a penis like <laughs> it's it's just a job but as soon as you put that on and then you kind of see guys going, is it or isn't it? 
Like my brothers have a field day with pictures, showing it to their friends, saying, "Oh, look at this girl." And Would you? Like, wouldn't you? Yeah. But they always say yes, which is so funny. And then we say, human. "It's my little brother." It's it's very fun. So you do get that side of it as well. And like you and I, when we were walking the streets on that stupidly hot day in King's Cross, people were like, "Either she's really tall or she's a he." <laughs> which in King's Cross is kind of yeah. part of the course, really. <laughs> well, just for people who listen, who are really big fans of the show, what is a number that you? Love, like you live for over the course of the show that you really enjoy doing? Um, surprisingly, it's always not my father's son, which is the most subdued number in the whole show. That's the power ballad, isn't it? No, that's Hold Me In Your Heart. That's at the end. Not my father's son is when you... The reason I like it is because it's when you realise that Lola's actually called Simon and Lola's only human and she can hurt just along with everyone else. She's the same thing. I, I always used to say that she's kind of like an onion. Like, there's so many layers to her, but you only ever see the drag element. The fun element is what people think that she is. But she's she's had a childhood that is the same as Charlie, and the reason I like that song so much is because for the first time in the whole show, you can hear a pin drop. And it's when the audience kind of go, I know someone like that, or I've been through something like this. Or like, anything to do with acceptance. If no one's been accepted, it's a very lonely place to be, and... I have to draw from people's experiences to make myself so vulnerable and lonely that people see themselves in me. Women, men, kids, anything, look up and they can see themselves sat on the bench in the bathroom. And I think, I don't know, I just like that, maybe because I'm such a, an actor, uh, like a musical theatre boy, that that is quite a good thing to get my teeth into. But, I mean, if you ask me what my favourite song is with regards to the fun jumping around side of things, it would have to be like everybody say, yeah, with the treadmills. There's something about that. Even Sunday, the show just gone. We were doing it, and I looked around, and everyone was laughing, and we were having a good time, and I had one of those, still, after two years of doing it, like, pinch-me moments, where I'm like, this, is, this job is so good, and I don't want it to come to an end. Whenever it will, I don't want it to, because it's just fun. Who do you have the most fun with behind the scenes? Which of the performers? Um, there are three that I'm constantly, they just get my humour down to, everybody does, but there's three of them, um, Blake, who is one of the angels, Blake Applequist, who is the blonde, one of the blonde angels, and then Bronte, his girlfriend, which is interesting for her to see him drag up every night, she's a swing, and then Matt Predney, who is one of the ensemble boys that covers Charlie. The three of us kind of... Oh, Matt's ne middle name is actually Gentle, and you'll kill me for saying it, so we call him Gentle. Matt Gentle Predney. Um, we have a, such a bit of a... Probably too much of a giggle at times, but... The whole company are brilliant. The whole cast. I've worked in casts where there's cliques and people don't get on, and I know I've just said those three people, but it's not a clique. It's open. Everyone and anyone can join. Like, it's... We all get on, and I think that's important with delivering our message because it's about getting on it's about being in a happier place than what some parts of the world are in now and well i love to end the interview by saying if i was to bump into you in a, a year's time and you were to be f far along enough in a project that is just a dream right now or something that you would love is there a show or a career I don't know. Hi, then you'd love to be. Yes, Dan, I've, I've nailed it, I'm doing this. Do you know this. what? Like, probably not career-wise. Um, 
I moved to Australia within the first week I met the love of my life, um, who I've decided to stay here with. Um, so we get to keep you. And you get to keep <gasps> me, which I've never said in an interview, so there you oh, go. Oh, um, Yeah, so I just want, I've never been so content or happy in my entire life because of work, because of him, because of this brilliant country. So if you meet me in however many years time, I hope that it's in Australia. I hope that I have a home here with maybe a family. Um, and with career-wise, I just hope that it continues. I've been lucky enough to to be back-to-back -back with work and hopefully that'll continue. And if it doesn't, but I still have my health, then fine. Is there a role that you have seen that you think, ooh, I love that? I'm lucky enough to have done all my dream roles, John, Simba and Lola. You did um, Simba? I did Simba oh. in Lion King, so if any of those three came back, I'd jump at the chance to do it again. But with regards to any other, oh, I'm a huge fan of Hamilton, but I don't have any. The best part about achieving dreams is you get to make new ones, but I haven't made one yet because I'm still in one. Um, but ask me in a few months when when this is all over, if it's over then, then I'll... What a great problem to I have. I'm right, it's not a bad one. <laughs> I'm still living my dream, so I just haven't had a chance to think of new ones. I really like how that sounded now. <laughs> no, it's perfection. We could all, we, I wish we could all feel so satisfied. No, it is. It's a nice place to be, and I hope it continues. Well, the, the universe has gifted us with you in that role, because I know that when we were swanning down, we went to Bondi, we went to King's Cross, we were walking through, you know, the circular quay, and it was just as if, you know, an angel had just, <laughs> an apparition had come just to treat everyone to just a moment of glamour. Yeah. Lola is just a, a, a whiff of glamour in this. She's pretty damn special that will, I'm actually trying to plan some form of tattoo that I will have on me that she will be with me constantly. Just a red boot forever tattooed on your I'm leg. I'm thinking of getting just a line where my boot goes up to. Yes. So no one will know what it is, but I will. Perfection. For sure. Mm. So, yeah. We'll see. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked anything that you heard on today's show, please subscribe. But the best thing you can do is to share it with someone, anyone, everyone who may find it inspiring. I'll also be featuring highlights from this and all the podcast conversations on my Instagram at Dan Brophy. And I want to put a special shout out out there to anyone who would like assistance with workshopping their passion project. Whether you are frustrated by your day job and don't know where to begin the process of finding an outlet, or if you're just stuck on the seventh draft of your novel and creatively blocked, I'm looking for volunteers to help me develop a workshop that I'm putting together. So this could be something that we get together and talk about in person or via Skype. But I am as intrigued by hearing your problems as hopefully you are by solving them. Drop me a line at danbrophy at gmail.com or send me a message via Instagram, which is at danbrophy. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, try painting something. <laughs>